Literature has always been a way of softening borders between people, uh, breaking down projections, kind of taking big uh, dismissive concepts and complicating them with actual human characters. So I think any of us could use that uh, in a world that is, you know, kind of dominated by what I would consider a fairly shallow and very pervasive mode of social media uh, in which you tend to think of the other person as an invisible anonymous other who's sort of in opposition to you. Literature turns it around and says, no, they're actually the person you think is your enemy, regarded with enough affection, with enough time and care and love, will be seen to be very similar to you, actually. Even if they're quite different in the world, they emanate, we emanate from the same root. Uh, so to me, this is a time when um, maybe a certain cultural tendency to minimize art or kind of treat it as a uh, kind of indulgence is being called into question. But uh, it's a time when we should recognize that art is actually the, the way people think best about the world. And I thought, I didn't think novels were written about people like us. And I sure, sure didn't realize that he saw exactly what intentions and worries are. There's a, a line that I used in Game of Thrones that a reader lives a thousand lives before he dies and the person who does not read lives only one. It was the best of times. It was the movie, The Tree of Life. This is James Brown. <laughs> <laughs> I can't let that one go. <laughs> we are here to talk about books, but James just broke my heart, making fun of my favorite movie. Um, yeah, so we are. To be here fair, with... I didn't make it past the first ten minutes, so it may have been really great after that shot uh, of the tree. To, to be fair, it doesn't really change after the first ten minutes. <laughs> so we got uh Bill Nick and uh Joseph here again. Hello. And hi. We're doing Mount Rushmore books. Something really specific. Um sure <laughs> good discussion. Um James, do you like books? I like books, and we should kind of specify it's not just any books. These are books that at some point have been in print. Okay, good. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, we did narrow it down from that. Let's just go right to it. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we are. Yeah. Uh, well, it's me, <laughs> I guess. So, my number four. Well, shit, man. I'm not ready. Um, so, this sounds kind of weird, I know, but it's just true. Um, I'm picking the, the. I don't know what you said. The Bible. <laughs> My number four is uh, <laughs> the collected poems of Allen Ginsberg. That's right. Uh, I, roll. <laughs> I mean, just being honest, as they say. Uh, so in college, I took a poetry 101 class with Joseph and Matt Hoffman as a straight up uh, easy A and kind of fell in love with poetry. So. Um, as you'll notice with, all, I think, all of my picks, or not most of them, they're all from, like, the 50s and 60s. Seems to be uh, 
a time that I just wish that I was in. Um, and Allen Ginsberg's poems are awesome, and I love going back to them and seeing how relevant they are to today. America, am I right, guys? <laughs> so is he... So is, is he known for poetry? I'm not familiar with him. Is he? Yeah, he's like the Jack, like in the Jack Kerouac kind of um, that he, whole like beat poet, you know, of the 50s and 60s, talking about like how America sucks, you know. Yeah, topic I love. So, um, James I, I would say when I episode, saw you. I'm go sorry. Go ahead. You mentioned in the last episode how you hadn't seen I'm Not There, which is a movie I love that's about Bob Dylan. Um, and David Cross plays Allen Ginsberg in that movie, and he's perfect for the role. So, yeah. What were you saying, James? Yeah, I was going to say, the one. <laughs> when I saw you two on the uh, Joshua Tree 30th anniversary tour a few years ago, <coughs> one of the visual effects they had was they display the entire poem of America by Allen Ginsberg at yeah. the concert. Yeah, and, and it's a great poem. It's a great poem. I looked it up right now. Um, when will you I, take I can't off? stand my own mind, America. When will we when will we end the human war? Go fuck yourself with your atom bomb. I don't feel good. Don't bother me. I won't write my poem till I'm in my right mind. America, when will you be angelic? Love it. Nice. So yeah, that's my that's my number four, Joseph. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I I love all four of these equally. I, I know I say that all the time, but I can't pick one. So, my first entry is Jane Eyre. I love this book for a lot of reasons. One, it was the first book I at least I remember reading in the first person, and it was actually like originally subtitled. Um, Jane Eyre, an autobiography. So that kind of blew my mind. And actually, I didn't do this on purpose, but one of my other ones is like that. I really I think that's like a, a huge draw for me in books is, is just getting in the mind of other characters and their worlds. And the protagonist is really interesting and kind of unique, weirdly finding similarities between my other one. But Anyway, there's some debate on uh, whether or not she's really a feminist character. But even aside from all that kind of nonsense, or not nonsense, but all that debate, uh, I just love the story. I think it's really unique and fascinating. I don't so, know if you want me to get into in the, the plot. Or so, yeah, no, let's, because I get, let's get into the weeds a little bit about it. As someone who, I have not read that book, right? So, as some, but I know enough about it i guess so like what would be a for and against argument that she is feminist character well i guess i guess i'm more interested in like the is not side of it was not like she's supposed to be this like individualized like really uh, ahead of her time feminist character who's they talk about sex and and even i think they mentioned feminism at I don't know that it's not called that, but definitely a lot of that is at its core. Um, but then the, the opposite side is, well, she's in love with this older guy, and part of the novel revolves around her like getting his affection, earning. His yeah, affection. gotcha. 
But, you gotta put it in context, though. You know, you can't look at somebody being a feminist icon at the time that book was written the same way you look at it in 2020. Right. It's exactly. uh, people that criticize that I think have no sense of history. It's just ignorance, and it bothers me. Yeah, that's a good point. Like it's, it. I looked it up. I couldn't remember exactly. It came out in 1847. So her um, and most books, whether you like it or not, end up having some sort of uh, relationship at some point in the, the book or the even movies, whatever. It's hard to find anything that doesn't have that. So I don't know that just because she falls in love with a guy, it's immediately not feminist. But And I don't know how <laughs> strong the, uh, the opposing side is for that. I just remember... My professor at Northern was all about it, arguing that it wasn't feminist. And I was just kind of annoyed because to me, it misses the point. Like what I get out of it is Josh knows I, I never shut up about this. I just love like character studies. And so you get to know her from a child all the way through her spoiler alert marriage and everything else. And to me, being in the first person is very lends a lot to the, the character study. So. Yeah. That's when did you say this four. book was written? 1847. So some of the more famous quotes from this book, uh, Jane Eyre says, I believe, I would always rather be happy than dignified. And she says, I'm not an angel, <laughs> I asserted, and I will not be one till I die. I will be myself. In that time period, with the way that society functioned, those are kind of radical ideas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do not stand on ceremony. No, no, I'm done. No, 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 go ahead. I was just going to say to not stand on ceremony as a female in that society and saying, like, no, there's something bigger than that. Your own self-worth, your own happiness, your own life. That was – and it sucks to say that. I can't imagine living back then. That was a big deal. That was bold. Yeah, and I I mean I – reading that in college was, I think, a really good time to to read it because – it's not that I was a misogynist before then, but it definitely reading something like this from the eyes of a, a young girl to a woman in her whole life, like you really start to see women as people, <coughs> which most literature and movies, or at least a lot of it, sees them as side characters or whatever. So I, I recommend it to everyone. Bill, I don't want to spoil anything whatsoever, so I'm not even going to say what it is, but there's also kind of a weird, almost horror vibe in one of the sections of the book where something happens. So I would recommend either either reading it, because it's amazing, obviously, or even though this is blasphemy to Charlotte Bronte, there's a really good movie of it mm-hmm. um, with Mia Vasakoska, or however you say her name. So that's that would be again, and it's pretty true to it, in my opinion. Like it gets the the vibe right. So, yeah. Joe, have you ever heard of the Bechdel test? Yes. Okay. So, does everybody here know what that is? No. Nope. Yep. All right. So, the Bechdel test is normally assigned to movies. It's taken from this uh, comic back in 1985 called Dykes to Watch Out for. But essentially, it says for a woman character in a movie, essentially for her to be deemed a quality character, three things have to happen. There have to be at least two women in it. Uh, Those two women have to talk to each other, 
and they have to discuss something besides a man. And if they don't do that, then the argument is, well, those characters are really just there to enhance the man. And it's kind of really sad <laughs> how few movies pass that test. Um, and what was the test first, called? It's called the Bechdel test, B-E-C-H-D-E-L. When I first read about so, this, it was like okay. 10 years ago, and one of the movies they brought up, so like we reviewed like 500 movies. One of the only movies that passes it is The Saint with Val Kilmer, because this woman has her own character arc, her own motivations, talks about stuff besides just like the romantic lead in her life. It's And that was eye-opening to me. I thought like, wow, it's got to be less than half, but it was like less than 10%. It was insane. Mm. And so something like Frozen coming out where the two main characters are women and there is not a romantic element until like the last 60 seconds of it, that was a really big deal, especially for a Disney movie, which are typically about princesses waiting on their male hero to save them. Yeah, we're going in a good direction, but it took a long time to get there. All that to say again, Jane Eyre, yeah, great feminist book. (laughs) It would have passed that test with flying colors. One thing I'll say, just as a side note, everybody should read Fun Home. It was written by the the woman that wrote Thanks to Watch Out For, Alison Bechtel. So the name of the test, the book, it's it's a graphic novel about, like, her life, and it is fantastic. And then we actually saw a play of it. It's a musical that they oh made, which God. is kind of a dark musical topic, but it was fantastic as well. Just want to throw those out there. What's the musical called? Fun Home. Okay. All right. Thank you. Writing that down. All right. <laughs> Bill, what's your number four? Nice. All right. So my, I like crossed off my list several times so trying to pin it down so my number four was a book i read in college and it's a it's called ordinary resurrections and it's written by a guy named jonathan Cazole. he's is an education reformer i had to read three of his books for this one class so the first one i read was called savage inequalities and it was one of the more maddening books i'd ever read in my life because he points out just how unfair the educational system is in the United States and what goes into graphic details, some of the schools that these kids have to go to and neighborhoods that they live in and then directly compares it to a neighborhood that is less than like five miles away from this place. For some of them, he would name them, and I'm sure it was a permission thing, but then in one of his other books, I'm drawing a blank on it. It was kind of a follow-up to that uh, Savage Inequalities. He used uh, school districts here in Cincinnati. And I I have in my head, I know exactly which ones he's talking about because you can literally drive over one block and you are multi-million dollar homes. You could take that same house, move it a block over and, you know, not even, you know, and it's just, it sucks. I mean, he's definitely an activist that way. It's cool because he was like best friends with Mr. Rogers. And so anyways, this book, Ordinary Resurrections, like it's less more of the activism part of it. And it's just this really touching, heartbreaking breakdown of like just what it means to be a teacher. He kind of likens it to like you have these things that kill you 
but then you have these things that resurrect you as a teacher so you can keep doing what you have to do. And I freaking love it. And I had a chance to go see him speak and get his autograph in that book. It means a lot to me as a teacher. And it's just cool. Like, you know, he talks about how, you know, they were going to go visit a school in like inner city St. Louis or whatever. I can't remember the city exactly. And he was going to Mr. Rogers and how like they couldn't make it down a block without being stopped like a hundred times by these grown men and women like, oh, Mr. Rogers, we love you so much. You know, it's just cool that these guys were friends and that they were going and being with these people and like helping out in these schools and all that. So, yeah, that's that's my number four. All right. So, Bill, can I read a quote from that book and get your thoughts on it? Yes. This is from Ordinary Resurrections. We should invest in kids like these, we're told, because it will be more expensive not to, end quote. Why do our natural compassion and religious inclinations need to find a surrogate and dollar savings to be voiced or acted on? Why not give these kids the best we have because we are a wealthy nation and they are children and deserve to have some fun while they are still less than four feet high? Yeah, I totally agree with that. I freaking love that. And that's the thing where I feel... I, I feel like I, I don't know if the word resentment is is correct, but I definitely feel pissed that for some reason my profession is the only one that we have to excuse and validate why we need money. And it's dealing with freaking kids. Uh, I will avoid getting too political or too radicalized in my thoughts on it. Like no one bats a freaking eye when we're dumping like shitloads of money on equipment to kill people but if you know we dare ask for any sort of money for your freaking kids because we want the best for them somehow we we're we're turned into some sort of like money hungry rat bastards that we need to prove that look if you give us the money now we can keep these kids out of jail and then maybe just maybe someone will give a damn and like actually pay for it when and and then yeah that whole idea of it making it being fun holy shit like we just try to do everything we can to not make things fun for kids when it should be fun i mean yeah we got stuff to do but come on like i love that yeah that's good when they're still four feet high like that's the thing like kindergarten now than how it was when we were in school it's it's a wreck and it's sad it's sad good stuff i do like jonathan there and it's just one after another. I mean, and so that's what I like about that book because he, he spends a lot of time like and predominantly like inner city schools that are disadvantaged in the classrooms with those teachers and those kids. And yeah, this is great. All right, let's keep going. Nick, what's yours? First on the list. All right. So I'll go ahead and preface my four books in that I don't really get to read a lot. So some of the books that I'm going to mention, I'm probably not going to remember much about them. I just remember how they made me feel. So that's this first one is going to be a good example of that, which is All Quiet on the Western Front uh, by Eric Remark. If you haven't read this book, it's a novelization, but it's about a German soldier's experience in World War One which Eric Remark was a German soldier in World War One, but it wasn't an autobiography. He just wrote a fictionalized version of what he saw. And it's weird to me that I like this book because, as I mentioned on a previous podcast about movies, I don't like 
things to be too real in my entertainment. For some reason, books are a little bit different to me, though, because I'm absorbing it in a different way. With a movie or TV show, I can kind of just plop down and not have to participate. I'm just disengaged in letting my eyes and my brain wander. With a book, I can't really do that because if you do that, you're not actually reading the book. So this this story was just so gut-wrenching about just all the stuff that they had to go through. Like he went into detail about getting attacked with mustard gas and how like some of his his friends like were just being eaten alive inside of their gas masks because they had the wrong filters on and the mustard gas was getting in. And he he has this one part where the 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 narrator jumps into a foxhole and there's an enemy soldier in that foxhole and it's just kind of like this awkward standoff and then he has to kill the enemy soldier and then he has he's like remorseful about it and he he feels like he wishes he didn't do it because he thinks the guy wasn't going to attack him and he finds a letter in the guy's vest pocket written to his like i guess girlfriend or wife back home and he's thinking oh well i'm gonna have to get this letter to her now because i i killed her her boyfriend or her husband and it's just i mean since he actually was in World War One. It just kind of makes you think, you know, what parts of this did he actually experience, or like what elements of it? And it's just, it's absolutely gut wrenching and wrecks me. And I, I don't know if I'll ever read it again, just because it's such a, an emotional experience. But it's, it's, it's a very powerful book. That is on my list as well. I'll talk about well, that Billy, later. You want to chime in on that right now? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I mean, I guess I'll jump in. The detail of it, it's incredible. The intro alone, where he says that it's, it's not to be a confession or an accusation. It's least of all an adventure because death's not an adventure. And that simple line of it's just simply to tell the tale of generation of men who, even though they escaped the bombs and shells, were destroyed by the war nails it because that's that's what happens to all generations of men especially that one because they were you know at the beginning of this thing they were charging machine gun nests on horseback i mean that's that's the hell that they were in the middle of so like that scene that nick was talking about where he murders the french soldier goes through his papers he sees that he's i can't remember what the guy's profession was like a cobbler or something like that and he goes through this internal cycle of like, I'm going to take care of his family. I'm going to write them letters. I'm going to be a cobbler, too. I have to do something to make it right. But then by the time the time's over, he's forgotten the dude. It's just a body in a ditch because he realizes that he has to survive. And for me, the heartbreaking part of it for me was that when he's been on the front, he's recuperating from the attack. He gets some leave and he goes back home. And he's in his room, and he just is going through this internal dialogue of looking at, for example, you know, he had a butterfly collection. And he's realizing that even if he lives during the war, that version of himself is dead forever because of what he's experienced. How could he ever go back to collecting butterflies? And then it's just heartbreaking because, on, you know, on that side, especially written from the German perspective, 
you're like, well, well, those were the bad guys in our wars. But then you read this and you're like, okay, there were people as well. They were people as well who got pulled into this bullshit. I mean, yes, they were obvious bad guys. I'm not going to go to that part, but it's, uh, it's so beautifully written and it, it encapsulates the whole thing and, and it doesn't do anything to glorify it at all. You know, it goes into like how they were friends, how you had that friend who was really good at finding food all the time, the arguments about, you know, getting served food. And he talked about like just the way of the soldier's life was uh, there was no modesty or privacy at all. It's just great. So it's it's definitely one of my one of my top. I love that book. And correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this also the book where they he kind of goes over like when they get to Christmas and there's just a like silent truce and the two different sides kind of like yep. stop shooting and like have Christmas dinner with each other. That then, did happen, but I don't think it's mentioned in the okay. book. I yeah. like I said, I can't remember a whole lot about it. I just remember hearing that story and I've right. always like attached it to this book since I'd heard it. Yeah, well, and it's just sad. I mean, even though it's not like, oh, this actually happened to me, you know it did. Like, you know, in the beginning scenes of the book, one of their friends from home is is dying in the hospital, and they all know it. Even yep. the guy who's dying, but they're trying to be like, oh, no, you're going to be okay. And then, you know, he's remembering leaving the train station, and this guy's mom is losing it. And now he's like, now I've got to write her a letter and tell her that he's dead. You know, I mean, so yeah. it's it's just a wonderful book. And we could do an entire podcast about the quote I'm about to give you guys. But if you have any thoughts on this, our knowledge of life is limited to death. <laughs> I've never read this book, but I just looked up OK quotes and I thought that was amazing. Yeah, I and, so, and that's from All Quiet on the Western Front? Yeah, that's from All Quiet on the Western yeah. Front. And, yeah, I yeah. mean, because I'm, I'm remembering a scene where, I mean, just thinking about that, like, and I, I don't know if this fits in totally with that quote, but it just made me think of that section of the book when he's on leave and he's back home. Mm-hmm. And he talks about when he's at the, the beer garden hanging out, and he's basically having to listen to all the bullshit of the townspeople, especially the older guys who are there like armchair quarterbacking the whole thing. Yep. And he just chooses to stay silent because they don't know what they're talking about, you know? So then, you know, it's that realization, you know, that it shows up in scene to scene, like in the middle of all this horror, like that's where you finally realize that life is important like having that butterfly collection, but then how could you ever go back to that life after you've been around that hell? Yeah, that's a good quote. And then the end of it, if you haven't read it, I mean, the end of it is just so abrupt that some people would, you know, criticize it for that, but it's just kind of like, well, that's, that's how it happens. Like it's abrupt. There's no, just because, you know, your name comes up enough in the story doesn't mean that you're safe from bad things happening to you. All right. Um, James, your number four. 
My number four, first one I'm going to mention, and I know um, we had a joke about it earlier, which is totally cool, but I did want to, <laughs> I wanted to put the Bible on my list just because I think it's really cool. So, yeah, I know a lot of people have Hangouts, which is completely fine. I think if you look at it, if it's literal or not, I know it was written in the East and I took this class that say, like, if you're trying to look at the Bible as being literal or not, you're kind of missing the point of it to begin with. That really, I don't know, resolved a lot of crap for me. So they're like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, Jonah swallowed by whale and all that stuff. You don't, whether or not that really happened isn't really what that story is about. But what I wanted to go into, you know, my favorite book of the Bible is Ecclesiastes, right? So what I wanted to read, what I thought was really relevant to what's going on in our country right now is Ecclesiastes 8.11. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with rage and schemes to do wrong. I think that's what's happening. We have all seen this evil happen, and we're just waiting and waiting. I don't know what people expect to happen. People Mm -hmm. that are complaining about riots, like, well, what do you want to happen? Give a better solution. Don't say do nothing. That's not an acceptable option right now. I'm I'm not pro riot, you know, but I mean, it's so. And we can edit this out, but it's so weird that like you can see something so evil on plain display, right? Yeah. And there are people that just want to essentially sweep it under the rug and say, well, let's just not talk about it. Let's just not talk about it. It's not surprising. It's predictable. It's the pattern. But it's still, it'll shake you to your core every single time that it happens. And then right after that, like two verses later, um, it says there's something meaningless that occurs on earth. Good people who get what the wicked deserve and wicked people who get what the good deserve. But that is meaningless. And I I love Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes makes sense to me um, more than any other philosophical book I've ever read. Just like, yeah, life is hard. Life sucks. It seems to be, you know, random sometimes. And just hearing like, oh, that's meaningless, by the way. There's not some deep point to all this, but... Later on in the Bible, there's this whole, like, you know, God can make beauty from ashes. Like, okay, there is this destruction, but good can come out of that. That's been true in my own life. Um, I don't want to get too deep here since we're having fun talking about books. So sorry for Go for going it, man. out there. But, um, yeah. Yeah, it's obviously, I think the reason I love it, and a lot of us do, is it's it is comforting. And when you... When you're a person of faith, that that does kind of become the thing that you go back to over and over. And I don't know. I it's funny. I was at my church tonight. They did this parking lot thing where like they assigned people parking like two spaces apart from each other, so nobody would be within six feet of each other. And then they just got speakers and had this band play uh, some worship songs, right? And I'm not big on praise and worship music but the last thing they did was this this long version um for essentially the people that were there they played some song that was essentially a co-op of the thing in uh psalms may where may the lord bless you and keep you may the lord's face shine upon you that blessing lord bless 
see like you know however many people are there just in their little lawn chairs you know their car on one side they're like free space kind of marked out on the other side of their car just sort of like looking as the sun's going down in the sky and just sort of receiving this like message of hope with everything bad going on right now all that to say that's my number four so my number three, James, interestingly enough about what you're talking about is Notes of a Native Son by James Baldwin. It's a book of essays by a writer who was also a playwright and a activist and all that kind of stuff. He's black, and so this book is a lot about the black perspective. This was 1955, I looked it up, and it's just crazy how relevant it is to today I, I read this maybe five years ago or something whenever there was a documentary that came out called i am not your negro and it was basically a documentary about the life of james baldwin and i kind of fell in love with him and wanted to read his book and this was kind of his big one um and so i read it and it's fantastic that i looked up since you were looking up quotes james i looked up quotes and it's just it's just crazy like all of them are about like what's going on now um, yeah, <laughs> yes. No one is says like no people come into possession of a culture without paying a heavy price for it. Yeah, just all about like us, us being white people taking advantage of black people for hundreds of years and just expecting nothing to happen from it. So, I just want to say I'm on Goodreads right now, and the top quote is the American ideal after all is that everyone should be as much alike as possible. Yeah. And that should really hit home with a whole lot of people right now that that's a problem. I mean, I know this, like, term gets thrown around easily, but when I read it, I was like, this guy is a freaking genius. Like, like every line I had to stop and just think about. It's just so good. There's one line that I don't think is from this that I just periodically just repost on Facebook. And I don't have it pulled up, so I can't remember. But basically what he's saying is, like, he thinks the reason that people are drawn to like hating each other so much is that if they think if they stop hating, then they'll have to deal with their pain. And it just goes to like the heart of like what is going on in, in our country right now. And, and I just love it. So it's not, I mean, it's not like a light read, but it's an important one. So that's my number three. All right, Joe, what do you have, man? So I have one called we have always lived in the castle. Oh, yeah. Jackson. I don't know. Uh, well, I, we ran across this. Ashley is a fan of Shirley Jackson, and we ran across this book. Um, gosh, like, it was when we were in the house, so probably like seven years ago or something. But when I read it, like, 
almost cover to cover and put it down. I was like, that's my favorite book of all time. And I know it's an ongoing joke that I'm prone to hyperbole, <laughs> but God damn it, if that book is not amazing from start to finish. It's similar to Jane Eyre. She's an 18-year-old girl telling the story in her first first person. Um, and she's really, she's a really unique character. I really want everybody to read this book. She And it's short, too. You could do it pretty quickly. But she's hilarious in, like, this really dark way. So it's about her and her older sister. And they live in this estate, this this. And there's like a very vague thing for the first half or whatever of the novel where you can tell that like a tragedy happened, but there's just gradually letting you know kind of what it was. And I don't want to get too much away, but it's, it's really unique. And I just felt like that was probably the number one thing I liked about it was I felt like I'd never read a book like that where she's hilarious but also messed up and the book is weird but also interesting and like there's magic in it and not like real magic but she does these funny things where she tries to like mess with this guy who's getting too close to her sister and it's really hard to explain probably it's not coming out great but it's a fantastic book shirley jackson's awesome she's like ashley and i's favorite person yeah we have always lived in the castle that's what it's called all right, Joe, the line I looked up for this one, uh, I thought this was pretty funny. There had not been this many words sounded in our house for a long time, and it was going to take a while to clean them out. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I love the the main girl. Her name's Mary Catherine Blackwood, but she goes by Mary Cat. And I really want to name, like, a cat or a kid or whatever it might be. <laughs> Mary Cat, like, it's a really great name, and she's a really great character one thing i usually don't like in books is the whole unreliable narrator thing which she is but i feel like it's done for a really cool storytelling reason in this one so it kind of won me over yeah it's got some good stuff in it i know this can be kind of a touchy subject when talking about books but did you see the netflix movie of that I didn't want to. I was really excited at first. Okay. I was a sucker for it. And then I I haven't brought myself to ruining my image of the book yet. Okay, gotcha. Because I was I wondering know. how you thought that stacked up to it. I don't see how anything could. I mean, it's as we always talk about on this show, <laughs> it's hard to live up to that. I mean, like Josh said, it took them forever to get Daredevil right. So yeah. I just don't trust. I've seen too many things go bad. Like Lucifer. you've been hurt too many times before. Been, yeah, but I keep <laughs> the, keep going back for more. Um, yeah, there's a there's a movie that we really want to watch called Shirt. I think it's called Shirley, and it's about Shirley Jackson. So Bill, did you see the movie? I did. Yeah, I haven't read the book. And I've I do enjoy her as a writer. And I was reading the I saw the movie and I was talking to Tommy about it to see if he had read it or read the book or not. We've always lived in the castle. It's kind of on my list of things I would like to read, but I just don't have much time to. And unfortunately, my attention span makes it difficult for me to really sit down and read. That's why I really like audiobooks. Yeah, I'd like to check it out. Bill, what's your number three? All right, my number three 
was The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. So are you guys, how familiar are you guys with this Hell book? yeah. Yeah. It's really good, and it's super disturbing. It was written in 1906, and a quote from Upton Sinclair I really like was, after the fact, because the book just became a bestseller immediately. So the quote afterwards was that he had intended to hit America in the heart, but accidentally hit the stomach. Because what he did was, in preparation of writing this book, he worked in a meatpacking plant in Chicago for two to three months and then wrote a book about what he saw there and what he experienced there. And it was freaking disgusting. So what he meant for that was he wanted to shine a light on how immigrants and low-pay working-class people were being treated. That's what he was going for. Like, he wanted to hit him in the heart. Like, so he was telling the story about the, you know, this fictionalized family that were immigrants from Eastern Europe. Jurgis is the name of the father and his family. And they're full of hope, and they're excited, and they can't wait. And they've got their jobs in different places and everything. And, you know, they've got a house, and it's a brand-new house and everything else like that. And it's just... Chapter by chapter, just tragedy after tragedy befalls this family and is just heartbreaking. Like there and then you can see on how now the thing is, is that when Upton Sinclair wrote this, he was a staunch socialist, so much so that he was invited by Stalin. And then when he saw what was going over in Europe, socialism, he came back and he's like, I don't want to be a socialist anymore. But he was just saying like. He didn't say it like this, but basically like this capitalist machine is chewing up and spitting people out and it's being done in a way of like producing the food that you eat that is disgusting. So he tells stories about like people who accidentally have their fingers cut off and everything just keeps going like those fingers get packed into your food, like rats get packed into your food and like even talking about how like people would fall into the boiling vats of lard and nothing would stop. They would just be boiled up along with it. And then that would be sold as like, so that was the part where like it hit people in the stomach. And what's really cool about it is that that book was like the final push because during that time period, there was no regulation over food at all. There are all sorts of chemicals being pumped into it. Like milk was being, preserved and sweetened with formaldehyde for example and there was no regulations of it it was just freewheeling whatever so when this book came out came out that was like the final tipping point of a lot of people who were like pushing for regulation and like the fda for example came about shortly after this book because of what it came out so i think it's just a really neat piece of storytelling and historical storytelling and talking about what life was like for these people and what they had to endure. You know, the, the new house that they were so proud of was a house that another family just like them had been evicted from and had been repainted because the same thing happened to them. So it's kind of, it's a kind of a niche snapshot of like, okay, this was America during the Gilded Age. So yeah, that's my pick. All right. So Bill, the two quotes, I'm going to do two here because they just contradict each other so much. Um, yeah. 
The first one, so he went on tearing up all the flowers from the garden of his soul and setting his heel upon them. And the one right beside it is the old wanderlust had gotten into his blood, the joy of the unbound life, the joy of seeking, of hoping without limit. So this sounds like a pretty powerful book. No, it is. Yeah, I mean, because it's, you know, and and in fact, first quote was from, I'm sure talking about Jurgis, like, it's really sad because, and, and I know it's like, written in a way to be this way but knowing that it's representing what happens in real life like this optimism of america is the place where we can make it and do well and you know the american dream and that this family does everything right and everything is torn out from under them you know it's just one thing after another and like it all the family members are either dead or they're so beaten down by everything they might as well be like they just disappear as alcoholics and or they they just it's terrible so yeah that that thing about the ripping up the flowers and stomping on them that can resonate with a lot of people even if you haven't gone necessarily through that experience okay nick you ready yeah so for my number three i was originally going to i'm choosing a neil gaiman book I was going to go with The Ocean at the End of the Lane. But the more and more I thought about it, that book, I that was my first Neil Gaiman book that I ever read. And it's been so long that I can't really remember much of the plot to that book. I just remember that I really enjoyed reading it, and I thought, gosh, this is a weird book, but I really enjoy it. But that was pretty much it. Now, since then, I have read The Graveyard Book, which is uh, what I'll, I'll be presenting. The Graveyard Book is a young, adult, a young adult novel, so it's that already kind of, with some people, gets a bad knock. But it for me, even though I already went over uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, I really do enjoy a nice, good, easy read. And this is a good, easy read. But it's also still just weird as shit. So the premise of the book is that there's this – right at the at the jump, there's this family that gets murdered. And their little toddler baby escapes and crawls all the way to a graveyard and is adopted by these two ghosts. They don't know what the baby's name is, so they just call it Nobody. And the the ghost husband and ghost wife, they were Mr. and Miss Owens, so it's Nobody Owens. He has a guardian named Silas, which I think is kind of awesome because my youngest son is named Silas. But Silas is this mysterious, ever-living creature, which kind of alludes to that he may be a like a good vampire or a reformed vampire i should say but he's kind of this his mysterious guardian through this um he makes a friend with other or makes friends with other ghosts in the graveyard one of which is a a young witch that was killed during the salem witch trials he makes friends with this alive girl that comes to the graveyard every now and then and he tries to like slowly integrate back into society after living all these years with the dead yeah so it's just this really cool weird book the guy at the beginning of the book that has killed his family is still looking for him all these years Um, and his name is jack it's revealed later that he's in the long line of jack of trades that they're just kind of like hired assassins and things like that 
But yeah, it's it's a fun read and it's just weird and has a werewolf in it, has alternate dimension with like these like ghoulish demon like things and it's yeah, it's a fun book. Nice. So Nick, have you read cuz I'm like a Neil Gaiman fanboy. Have you read Odd and the Frost Giants? Not yet. Only I two Gaiman like books that I've read have been those two that I mentioned. Okay. It's similar to the graveyard book, not at all in like plot, but just that it's a quick, easy read. I like both of them, but I, I kind of like Odd and the Frost Giants more. It's it's Viking themed, so nice. That's, oh, cool. Yeah, it's pretty dope. It, so and there's good art in it too. Called Odd, O D D, and the Frost Giants. The Frost Giants. Yeah. Cool. I'll have to check that out. So the two quotes that I'm going to read here is the first one is face your life. It's pain. It's pleasure. Leave no path untaken. And the next one is it's like the people who believe they'll be happy if they go and live somewhere else, but learn it doesn't work that way. Wherever you go, you take yourself with you. If you see what I mean, do you have any thoughts on those quotes since that's one of your books? I mean, the, the last one essentially is that you can't really escape like whatever you're dealing with, especially if it's tied to the way you see the world and the way you think about things, you can't escape yourself. I mean, that's kind of a, a big premise of this book is that this kid wants to live the entirety of his life in the graveyard, but the, the ghosts and the dead there realize that it's, I mean, it's kind of like, kind of like the jungle book in, in effect that like Mowgli couldn't stay in the jungle Nobody couldn't stay in the graveyard. He had to go back to the world of the living. So he he basically was trying to ignore what he was and forget his what his actual reality was and go and stay living in something that was comfortable that he didn't fit into. I am so going to read this book. It sounds really cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. James? Uh, My number three... Ah, so you guys have brought up some really deep, powerful books. I'm going to go the opposite way, right? Please. I, please, okay. <laughs> I, I, I've i been in this phase of my life for like three to four years now where there – it's funny. I was talking to uh, my friend Tommy this week. Hey, Tommy. Love you, dude. And we were talking about these moments in life where you kind of all of a sudden – get this like lightning bolt and suddenly like so many parts of your life are different all at once. And I know the last uh, several years I've had enough of those where I can kind of switch on. I kind of realized uh, last week and this might not be healthy, but I can kind of switch into like quote unquote crisis mode without even much effort anymore without really noticing it. It's just like, okay, this is the new reality. This is what my life's going to look like for the next two to three months. This is what I have to do. The upside of that is that when something's really hard, like maybe uh, taking care of my mom for a few months and the strain that can put on my family and um, then dealing with the emotional side of my taking care of my parent and the physical exhaustion and blah, blah, blah. The upside is when you can go into that mode really easy, you can get done what you need to do. But the downside of that is that emotionally I can get kind of bad about dealing with it as it's going on in the sense that I won't. And so 
I, Bill, I've shared this with you. So, um, you care if I put this out here real quick? No, go ahead. All right, cool. So we, um, I think everyone here knows, like uh, my wife and I went through four miscarriages and like that, that's really hard. But like the harder part was like all the days between those big events, you know, like those things happen and it's terrible. But then like, it doesn't just like, okay, so that happened. Like there's months of undoing that and it was so hard for my wife. And then having a daughter and worrying about how that's rubbing off on her, you know, like my wife crying every day, some of the darker moments I won't go into while all that's going on. And sometimes I just want an escape, right? One of the books I like going back to over and over as an escape is live from New York, the oral history of Saturday night live. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it, yeah, it's this insanely long book that is essentially, if you've never read an oral history before, it's just quotes. It's block quotes. They will, the writers, uh, quote unquote, the interviewers will kind of outline the topic. And then for the next like 500, 600 pages, they'll just switch topics. And then you'll get different quotes from people involved, the cast, the hosts, the production people, the writers. And so because they're all working in comedy, it's this insanely entertaining read where just about everybody involved is really funny. And there's all these crazy stories that I had never heard before. I love it. I've read it probably three times through now, maybe more than that, because I just like flip through it constantly. Not constantly, but like whenever I get a minute, I'll flip through it sometimes. That's become maybe my top go-to book in the last couple of years. So yeah, number Three, second one on my list, live from New York, the oral history of SNL. Heck yeah. So James, I love oral histories as well. And well, there's two that I want to recommend real quick. There's one called, well, it's fictional. So it's Rant by Chuck Palahniuk. Did you ever read that one? No. That's amazing. It's my favorite, Chuck Palahniuk, which I don't know. I know he's a pretty divisive guy, but it's an oral history of like a fictional character. I was thinking that Gonzo, there's a book I read about Hunter S. Thompson. I was thinking that was oral history, but maybe it was just a regular biography with a lot of quotes. I can't remember. But yeah, Rant is awesome. I will also throw in there, if you like oral histories, there's a book called Louder Than Hell, which is billed as the complete oral history of rock and roll. And it's mm. basically compiling a ton of different interviews of different musicians and band members and just people involved in the big rock bands and is doing it in chronological or- order in a way that it's basically telling a story. It's a massive book, though, so I've, I've probably only gotten a half, about halfway through it, but it is a very interesting read. I'm glad to hear that because I tried reading this oral history of MTV because of like the Saturday Saturday Night Live one so much, and I hated it. And it made sense to me, like, okay, if you are a comedy writer, you're a writer, and so you're going to have these kind of funny, interesting ways of saying things. The MTV one really made me think that I don't know if it was just the quotes that they pulled, because I know, again, songwriters, I would expect people to come off as more intelligent. Maybe it was just me, but I thought it came off as really ignorant, reductive, and <laughs> not good at all. And I, I, I expected greatness from it, and man, it people were just 
really quick sound bites, and they weren't that clever at all. <laughs> hmm. I will say, with louder than hell, it's especially in today's era, like the the Me Too era, early nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies rock bands. The things that they are discussing and basically bragging about about in these vintage interviews, you just kind of go, "Oh gosh, you're yeah. a terrible human being." But then they also cross right over into another person talking about that situation happening and being like, yeah, that was just not cool. Like if it's a more modern, like more recent interview about that situation or whatever. But so it's kind of like you have to think, okay, there's going to be some stuff in here that's just going to be wrong, but this is history. All right, Josh, back to the top, man. Yeah. Um, so my, what is this two is a storm of swords, which is the third game of Thrones book. I don't have a lot to say cause I kind of get them all mixed up, but I read them in really quick succession as quick as you can for 25 hour long audiobooks. But <laughs> back when, before the show came out or maybe it was after, I, I don't remember, but uh, me and Joseph and I think Matt was reading them hard copy cause he's an insane person, but we were reading them in audio format and they're just the best like page turner ever. And the third one was my favorite, um, has a lot of Rob Stark, who's my favorite character. So, so yeah, that's my number two. What you got for me, James? Let's see. <laughs> Every man must die, but first he must live. That's a good one. Oh, that was in Braveheart. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. The greatest fools are oftentimes more clever than the men who laugh at them. And there's a lot of good ones here, but I I don't know if I really would be giving you anything that you could really like sink your teeth right. into. I mean, it's it's more a book of just action and like just politics. You know, it's it's a Game of Thrones. It's like all these different kingdoms fighting over power, and it's just really intense and funny. There's a lot of funny stuff in it with Tyrion and different characters. It's just really good. Do you want to talk politics for a second? (laughs) Uh, Sure. Okay. All right. so this new book about Donald Trump is about to come out, right? One of the talking points that's getting hit on in its pre-release is that Ivanka Trump, his daughter, was sending government emails from a private email server instead of a government-licensed email server. And so because of like the uproar with Hillary Clinton and um, the stuff Trump had brought up um, in his part to kind of fuel that fire a little bit, he apparently said, like, oh, well, I'm going to go on TV and endorse this dictator, and that'll kind of take the narrative away, and people will be focusing on that instead of the emails. And that's essentially what happened when that went down. And so I want to, Josh, if you would talk about this, the quote that reminded me of that is always keep your foes confused. If they are never certain who you are or what you want, they cannot know what you are like to likely to do next. Yeah. um, I mean, that was a quote from the game of Thrones book. Yeah, not the art of war, the Game of Thrones. <laughs> That's amazing, especially it's for pretty, what you were just talking about. It's pretty incredible. I think like Cersei is one of my favorite characters, and she's James in uh, wrestling terms, like a huge heel. 
Um, she's got so many things wrong with her, but she's really good at playing politics and kind of fooling people into thinking that she's on their side or, you know, making deals and then double crossing them and that kind of stuff. So it's just, I don't know why, but to me, it's just super fun to read. I think when it's fiction, you know, you don't care. Like, <laughs> this, this doesn't mean anything. Like, it's not like this really happened. I think if I was reading something about a, a terrible dictator, then I wouldn't think it's as fun. All right, Joseph, what's your number two? <sighs> so my number two is, um, you guys might have heard of him. His name's Stephen King. <gasps> and he Bill, wrote. Hold on. Are you okay? I'm good. Just say his name you again. Your pants tighter. Yeah, <laughs> just a little bit. All right, keep going, Joe. And Bill and I have talked about this before, but even though we're both huge worshippers, cult followers, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> it's kind of funny that our taste and his specific books are frequently like opposite. And so if I if I remember correctly, Bill's not a fan of this one. And I was really close to picking a Dark Tower book, but I, I same Lise, here. Lisey's story. I wanted to pick a, its own like set <clears throat> novel. So I picked Lisey's story. I freaking love um, that book so much. Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe it was Tommy. <laughs> I know somebody doesn't like it. Yeah. Um, but yeah Probably Lisey my dumb stories, brother. It was not really I don't really remember it like blowing up when it came out. And nobody really seems to talk about it. I mean, not like a lot of people talk about his newer stuff anyway, unless you're a fan. But I'll try to keep it brief. So basically, like most of his stuff, he has like a really cool origin story of how he came up with the idea. So everybody knows he got hit by the van in like the late 90s. And he was in the hospital for a while. And while he was there, his wife decided to redesign his, his writing studio. And when he came home... He saw all of his books and his belongings and boxes and got the idea. He was like, well, this is what's going to look like when I die and they're going to pack up my studio. So he writes this book about the widow of a famous, <laughs> successful writer. So I don't I don't necessarily think that means that the character Lisi is anything like Tabitha, but it was more of just a jumping off point. So, but it's just really cool. It's It's one of those types of books that, goes back and forth between the past and the present so it's her uh grieving him and her life now but also telling the story of his life back and forth and then there's this really cool only Stephen king style like alternate not alternate universe but this like i don't know what you would call yeah it's hard to describe like it's it's such a Stephen king thing but basically like he can go into this other place and affect things and i don't want to give anything away because i really want more people to read it but she kind of like ghost like the movie ghost yeah just like ghost There's a whole pottery scene. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's just one aspect of it. Like, honestly, that part of it was cool and everything, but I just loved it as being like, really didn't do this on purpose, but I have three female character studies in my top four, but 
Um, yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> I really like that book a lot. And there's that scene. Do, do you remember the scene where he's talking about like what happened to his older brother? Yeah. And like that yeah. whole thing that that is one of the few Stephen King scenes that legitimately creeped me out when uh, we were listening to it as an audio thing. It's just so it, it doesn't get enough credit or praise for what it is. It's really, really cool, especially considering like how much of it is like autobiographical. Like he clearly is writing about. Yeah, he's switching up the details, but this is he's clearly letting us in like and what his life is like as a writer. You know, there's that guy who shows up who's a jerk that wants to be like a fan turned stalker who's like, well, it's not fair. You're keeping all of his unwritten stuff. You need to publish it for us. And that whole, you know, he's still a person who's married. He he doesn't belong to anybody other than to his wife is good. And he, just the just such an iconic. I can just picture him like working out his demons typing this up like you said about both um what it's been like being famous and all of the awful things he's gone through some at his own hand yeah um it's just it's really cool yeah that's lisey's story heck yeah love it all right so so joe the quote i'm going to ask you about uh with what you brought up was uh, Molly's Sam says, what do you mean? I say it all the time. And Molly says, you say ditto. And that's not the same thing. And then Molly says, I love you. And Sam says, ditto. <laughs> love that line. <laughs> also, from Lizzie's story, there's the line, isn't bravery always sort of beautiful? And then... This is the one I really liked. There's a lot of things people think they can't do and then discover they can when they find themselves tight-wired. So how would you say that kind of plays into the book? It seems like that would play into the book's theme on a larger scale. Yeah, I mean, the the other world thing, she kind of remembers that she, I mean, again, I don't want to give too much away, but she, she achieved some pretty cool things at the end uh, under a lot of, I guess you could say, pressure. So that's probably where that part is coming from. I don't remember the line, honestly, but that's probably where it's coming from. Cool. All right. Bill, you ready? Well, I already talked about All Quiet. So that was, yeah, I chimed in there. So that was my my next one. Nick, how about you, man? Okay, so my number, number two, right? Yeah. My number two is Ready Player One by Ernest Cline. This is, it's a dystopian future, I don't want to call it a fantasy book, but I mean, I guess that depends on like what kind of definition that you're using for that. Basically, the premise of this is that um, everyone in the future has kind of escaped reality by going into this, it's, it's a video game, pretty much. It's like they plug themselves into this video game, and it's this, alternate reality that they live in the fun thing about this to me was that there were so many 1980s 1990s pop culture references just peppered throughout this book i I know that i've I've not seen the movie but steven spielberg did this movie and just from the previews of it i was like oh man there's so many references in there but then i kept hearing that it wasn't that great of a movie 
I actually uh, liked it, especially oh, the cool. beginning. It gets a little boring, but the beginning is a, a really great, fun opening. So you should okay. at least just watch that since you like the book. It is another one where I own that on DVD. I've just not gotten around to seeing it. But the the premise of the story is that the, the creator of this alternate reality video game thing has kind of passed away, and he leaves this scavenger hunt kind of like – Charlie and the Chocolate Factory kind of deal where like whoever finds the like the the prize gets his like his empire and so this kid is basically up against this corporation that's trying to win and they're hiring people to like play this game and it's just I mean just all the different like adventures and stuff that he has to go through it's 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 fun but then it the, it also kind of gets into like escapism versus reality, and like I'm I'm just as guilty of choosing escapism to not have to deal with the shit that I'm dealing with in my regular life. I'd rather just plug into this thing and not not deal with reality. So this book kind of deals with that while also kind of just basically drowning you in nostalgia. So it's it's a I'm doing a terrible job of describing it, but it's a good book to check out. And it's also one that like you'll you'll latch into the story like super quick and just want to find out what's next, what's next, what's next. Looking at the quotes for this book, like right away, again, you mentioned that it's so many pop culture references. Like three of these quotes they attribute to the author are direct quotes from either songs or movies that I guess people didn't really pick up on, maybe. There's the no one in the world ever gets what they want, and that is beautiful. That is, uh, they might be giants. The uh, more successful <laughs> version of a little band we talked about called the Beatles, I think it was. Yes, of course. <laughs> no, the um, Beatles, you're pronouncing that wrong. Yeah, the Beatles. The one person can keep a secret, but not two. I think that's a paraphrase of something from uh, the old farmer's almanac. And here you go. You were born at a pretty crappy time in history, and it looks like things are only going to get worse from here on out. <laughs> Uh, for a bunch of hairless apes we've actually managed to invent some pretty incredible things people who live in glass houses should shut the fuck up yes I love that one good and the facts were right there waiting for me hidden in old books written by people who weren't afraid to be honest Um, so yeah Nick I don't really have any quote I can see here to really throw at you for a thought but did you have a favorite kind of pop culture reference that was buried in the book um I mean not really one that like sticks out in my mind this is one that I've I've read probably four or five years ago so it's it's all kind of blended together for me now I more just remember just the adventure of it the the pop culture was kind of like superfluous and like secondary to the actual story is just a an adventure story set in basically a video game. So it's just it's kind of like to to me is kind of like reading uh, kind of like reading Harry Potter but not as not as engrossing. You're not you don't really get invested in the character as much as you get invested in the story. And so I just saw this quote. This is a bit of a callback thematically to Joe's love for baby metal that one week, right? <laughs> Which love I thought, is one word for That was insanely entertaining. That was so much fun. Um, <laughs> I will say, 
Here's the quote. I watched a lot of YouTube videos of cute, geeky girls playing 80s cover tunes on ukuleles. Technically, this was not part of my research, but I had a serious cute, geeky girls playing ukuleles fetish that I can neither explain nor defend. (laughs) And this is a quote from the author? Yeah, that's a quote from the book. Oh, cool. So my number two, I... You guys have all heard me talk about this. I won't talk about it too much. The book, The Happiness Project, um, it's cliche to say something changed your life, but it kind of changed the way that I operate my year to year. So it's written by this woman named Gretchen Rubin, who used to work for Sandra Day O'Connor. And she just kind of left her career. She wanted to be a writer. And she loved history, so she wrote a few kind of of those like historical list books, like 31 Facts You Didn't Know About Winston Churchill. She's got a few of those. And at some point, um, she just sort of looked at her life, and she had a couple of kids, and she was married. And she, the way she puts it in the start of the book is, I really like my husband. I really like my kids. And yet, I feel like I should be happier than I am things irritate me really easily blah 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 and so because of what her career used to be doing research she just starts reading all these books on happiness and fulfillment and she again with her brain kind of being tilted the way it is she sets up a project for a year to give every month a theme on some way to try to make herself a happier person and that starts with like relationships marriage children friendships uh goes into physical health goes into finances all these things there's 11 things uh 11 different months have themes and then the 12th month is trying to practice everything she's trying to create habits for herself throughout these like 30-day periods and she called it the happiness project and she had a blog about it and it got bought out and turned into a book I saw the book because it was laying out in a furniture store on the table as like the, hey, sit down on this couch that you might want to buy and pretend like you're reading a book. And that was just the book they had out. And that's where I read the first chapter. And I went out and bought it not long after that. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And so what I started to do is every year – and usually I start about the last week of the year and continue into the first week of the year – I'll outline the way I want my next year to look. I'll write down all these things I want to do. I'll write down kind of these checkoff lists to make sure that I'm spending time with the people that I love the most. And again, the quote I brought up about minimalism a few weeks ago, it's the promotion of everything you love the most and the demotion of anything that distracts you from that. It's sort of that concept. Again, I loved the book so much. She's kind of like tongue-in-cheek type of humor. She's sort of self-deprecating in parts. I loved the book. I'd recommend it to anybody who is into any kind of self-help book at all. Yeah, Happiness Project. Love it a ton. That's my number two. Very cool. All right, Josh. My number one is For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway. Love it, love it, love it. So he's my favorite author. Just a huge, huge mark for him. And I have a hard time. Anytime I read another book of his, it becomes my favorite. For a long time, it was Sanasa Rises. And then it was Farewell to Arms. And then for a brief spell, it was 
old man in the sea. And currently it's for him the belt holes. So yeah, like I said, it's pretty much just whichever one I've read the most recently. Although I did read, I did reread Old Man in the Sea this week because of this topic. And I just thought, oh, that's a short one. Maybe I'll, you know, like it more. But for me, it's still this one. I just love his writing. I know it's not for everybody. And some people like to (laughs) make fun of it because it's, you know, it's not super flowery words. And it's just like real short and to the point. I think he called it iceberg. Was is it iceberg theory or something like that? Where it's basically like the short and to the point sentences, um, there's a lot more underneath. I just love him so much, and I think he's super interesting. And I'm also a, a geek for World War One, and he's got some books on that. Obviously, he was in it. So, yeah, that's my number one. All right, Josh. There are a ton what was of his name again? Uh, <laughs> John, John Grisham. Oh. <laughs> oh yeah, the guy that wrote Twilight, right? Yeah. <laughs> so John Grisham for whom the bell tolls. I'm not finding anything on Google for that. <laughs> um, but Ernest Hemingway, whoever that is, they have some stuff for him. So. Here are your quotes. There are so many good ones. This was a big storm, and he might as well enjoy it. It was ruining everything, but you might as well enjoy it. Yeah, that's that's everything. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what I love about him is he talks about death a lot, which is like my uh, favorite subject. (laughs) It's just like Mm -hmm. mortality, not really death, like not like the stupid Stephen King shit that some people like, but like, Oh, come oh, on. Man. <laughs> really? No, cell rules. I love cell. I'm just kidding. But I, just, so I do love cell. I just mean death as in like, we're all going to die. Like mortality kind of stuff. Not like spooky. Death. No bullshit. And that's, I feel like that's the central theme of all of his books. At least the ones that I've read where just thinking about like, what matters most and um, what's worth fighting for and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. it's just so good. I mean, that I, I don't know for me, like maybe I'm weird. I think it's probably just a lot of people do and they just don't say it, but I just think about that kind of stuff all the time. So to like, I've talked about before with empathy, reading a book where somebody else is also thinking about it, then I just really connect to it. Mm-hmm. All right, Josh, I know that you like uh, Pete Yorn, just like I do. I'm sending you a song, just in case you've never heard it. It's called Country. And um, so essentially that quote that I just read and hearing you talk about it made me think of that song. And so it's sort of this long-term look at a relationship. And it's this guy talking, you know, about living with this girl and he feels like there's a secret part of her that he's just not seen. And so they live in the country or they live in the city and then they move to the country and there are problems in the city. Then there's still problems in the country. Then at the end of the song, he has this great line where he says in the days that we were living, we were happy. The thing that we kept waiting for. And that always, that line always killed me. Just sort of like I could, before we started recording tonight, we all kind of shared like what difficult weeks we've had individually. Uh, one by one, it just seemed like it was a bad week for every single person who hosts this podcast. <laughs> and yet, 
the view from 30,000 feet, just 50 years from now, looking back, like, oh, wow, we had all these great people in our immediate families, and we have all these great friends that we get to spend this time with. And it's so easy for me to get caught up in, like, the day-to-day stresses to the point where I will have anxiety. Like, I'll feel it. I was feeling it today. Yep. And now just talking to having this conversation with you guys I'm like i'm fine i'm good everything's good my life is so good till tomorrow i just don't appreciate it enough yeah yeah <laughs> yeah there um this a little off topic but one line that i always think of for that is actually ben folds the <laughs> the guy that you hate james um mm-hmm. yeah i love <laughs> <Ben> Folds. <laughs> uh, where he says being poor wasn't what does he say? It's not such a drag in hindsight. Essentially saying, like, you know, when you're young and you just got married or whatever it is, and you're just, you feel like constantly living paycheck to paycheck or whatever. And um, just how, like, the stress that is consuming your mind is not really that bad because, you know, you have somebody there that loves you and spending time with each other as opposed to when maybe if you get a little bit more. Ne- more money you're going on vacations and thinking about other things and so Ernest anyway Ben Folds Pete Yorn I mean they're pretty much the same <laughs> funny thing and by the way Joe I don't this probably won't ever come up again but that Ben Folds song you picked that I was kind of ragging on and saying that I really hated it mm-hmm. I went back and listened to it again when I listened to the podcast where you were talking about how much you loved it and I really liked it and so I started <laughs> thinking like why did I have such a strong reaction against it so I looked at our playlist before I had a, I think it may have been after I fixed it. But you know how sometimes when you hear certain songs around other songs, it will affect how you think of that one. Like, you know, it's the that order whole playlist thing. Thing. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the playlist being so important. And so like the song it went up against was like this kind of banger metal song. And I think I listened to that first and then put on the Ben Folds song. And it's just like, ah, this is such a track. <laughs> but just listening like when you were talking about it then i went back and listened to it and again listening to people talk and then putting it on it's like this is really good what was wrong with me that day it was the order it was the playlist order do you remember what the metal song was i mean which oh one it was of, of mine i mean because mine was I, mean, I, I can look it up in like two seconds i'm doing it right where was Pull Apart, Deep Cuts Tournament, Alien Weaponry. Oh, yeah. It had that great (laughs) video, too. Yeah. I know Joe loves the videos. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. um, All right, Joe. Actually, before we do that, anybody else want to chime in on For Whom the Bell Tolls? Great Metallica song. (laughs) <laughs> awesome triple it's, h insurance the wrestlemania 27 well it's a great poem that the the book gets its name from i mean i love that uh i can't remember the guy who wrote it but it's just basically talking about how everybody's connected you know that the phrase no man is an island comes from that poem and it's just basically saying everybody's death is like a part of the continent of humanity breaking off so the whole idea is like, don't ask for whom the bell tolls because it tolls for thee. It's everybody. You know, don't be like, oh, who's who's the bell ringing for? Like, i.e., who's being executed at the time when, you know, it was written. That's what they would do. 
I read the book years ago. I did an audio as an audio book and I loved it, but I don't remember much of it now. I just remember loving it. There's this mini poem in the book. It's uh, I had an inheritance from my father. It was the moon and the sun. And though I roam all over the world, the spending of it's never done. That's pretty cool, too. There's oh, a lot of lines in this book. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right, Joe. Number Is this number one or just the fourth pick? Um, I, honestly, I would say it's number one. I mean, I, I can't really imagine anything... But whatever, it doesn't matter. I, I I love this. So this is, I don't know if you would call it a cheat. I don't, but nobody else has had graphic novels on there. But mine is The Sandman, and I'm going to pick Preludes and Nocturnes, the first volume. So it's the first eight issues of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. So The Sandman is far and away my favorite character and and graphic novel pretty much any any medium ever no no hyperbole here but <laughs> i love neil gaiman and it all kind of started with this i read this in my first year at northern and actually checked it out from the northern library it had no cover so it was just a black like a plain black hardcover and i specifically remember like laying there and reading it and just falling in love with it the, so the plot is super weird <laughs> it, when you just say it as a as a plot. But so like in the early 1900s, there's this rich magician guy and he's trying to become immortal, basically. So he captures he's trying to capture the embodiment of death so that nobody will die anymore. or so At least he won't die anymore, I guess. But he accidentally binds Death's brother, Dream. So throughout the whole series, there's these beings called the Endless. And they're all like Dream, Death. I think Despair is one of them. There's there's a bunch of them. But anyway, so when he captures Dream, there's like this worldwide epidemic. Awkward. Um <laughs> Of like sleeping sickness because dreams not there to put people to sleep, and like I'm probably doing with this plot, and it just goes <laughs> all it it goes bananas. Like so, way way later, like in the 80s, he escapes and he punishes the magician's son who was guarding him at that time to experience an unending series of nightmares. <laughs> so. Um, and then after that, he he goes on this quest because he's really weak from being imprisoned for so long. And they took all of his stuff. They call them like totems of power. So he has a this pouch of sand, obviously, to put people to sleep, this helmet and this ruby. And they're all over the world and stuff. What's cool about Sandman is there's this like since it's technically part of DC, it was their Vertigo imprint. There's just random people from there so like the the justice league is in there random you know times Hmm. and then there's like other characters that you recognize (laughs) but he actually created so he finds out that his helmet's in in hell by talking to john constantine but neil gaiman created him so you might know him now but 
He actually came from that. He created Lucifer as a character. That stupid freaking network show. So anyway, he goes to hell to find his um, helmet. And the reason I'm going all the way in this is, first of all, to say, like, this is only the first few issues. And there's 75 issues of the Sandman. So, like, all this craziness is happening right away. But I have a quote, because I don't know if you're going to find one, James. But this quote, kind of like you said about the Happiness Project, I can definitely say that this quote changed my life so he's in hell and he basically does like this battle of wits with one of the demons who's got his helmet and the thing is to like like they start out by saying like i am an insect and then the other one will say like well i'm a rat like eating the insect and they keep trying to think of more and more powerful things they go through all these crazy animals and they start getting to like you know intangible things and finally the demons like i am despair and lists all these awful like the unending blackness of of depression blah blah blah. Mm. and the same man says i am hope and that like yeah wins the battle basically nice um so but yeah i mean that's that's really all i have to say about like that that's just one volume of I don't remember how many volumes, but there's 75 issues. It was really cool. I actually got to meet Neil Gaiman. He was going to sign whatever he wanted. So I had him sign like the page where it says, I am hope. Oh, that's awesome. How much I loved it. He was cool. Heck yeah. Was that at Joseph Beth? Where did you guys meet him? That was at some, I don't remember what it was called. It was like a, a almost like a book fair or something. Okay. Um, Louisville, I, I honestly can't remember, but it was packed. Yeah, awesome. So, I did find some quotes on this, and again, they're very good. This book seems like it has like some heavy spiritual overtones, especially with like the scene you just described that was going on. You know, mm-hmm. one of the quotes here: I "Never trust the demon. He has a hundred motives for anything he does. Ninety-nine of them, at least, are malevolent." I think I'll dance. I think I'll dismember the world and then dance in the wreckage. That's really good. Um, Here's the, I found the full line. So the demon is, like I said, they're doing spider, snake, ox, keep getting like more and more powerful. There's a guy named Lucifer Morningstar, right? Well, it's actually, it's supposed to be like Lucifer, like Satan. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But um so Morpheus is the same man's one of his other names. So he says, I am a world space floating, life nurturing. And the demon says, I am a nova, all exploding, planet cremating. And Morpheus says, I am the universe, all things encompassing, all life embracing. And the demon says, I am anti life, the beast of judgment. I am the dark at the end of everything, the end of universes. God's worlds of everything. And what will you be then, Dream Lord? And that's when Morpheus says, I am hope. So good. Yeah, that sounds great. And just another super quick, and then I'll be done, recommendation. So anything Neil Gaiman has done, well, except for graphic novels, is better with his voice. His voice is like super... Bonerific and British. Um, 
and so a lot of his audiobooks, especially like his short stories, are really really great for um, for audio because of his voice. So, just FYI. Oh, and Good Omens. I don't know if anybody watched that. It's a fantastic series. I don't know if you would call it a miniseries. It's done, but um, they did of one of his books called Good Omens, and it's super spiritual and overtones it's about like an angel and a demon becoming best friends and that had david Tennant in it right yeah it's so it's so good it's one of the best shows i've ever seen it's awesome i'm done right (laughs) that was awesome thank you all right so my my last one is from stephen king And I really struggled on this one because I love so many of his books, but I picked the one that's the most special to me, and it's Nightmares and Dreamscapes. So it is a collection of his short stories, and I've always really liked his short stories, like collections like Skeleton Crew and um, Four After Midnight. That was kind of more novellas and um, Night Shift. That was another good one. But what I love about this one is that every single one of these stories are his straight up super weird, like no apologies at all, short stories. Like one is called The Moving Finger, and it's just a story about a guy who's watching Jeopardy one night, and he sees that there's this like finger crawling out of his drain. And then by the end of the story, it's like this giant anaconda length finger that has like these multi knuckles and all that and he's like trying to like chop the thing up because it's slowly making him crazy and all that is just so many good short stories like there's one that's called you know the chattery teeth is great rainy season i was just talking to my little brother tommy about this because in the story it takes place on june 17th which is my little brother's birthday and it's where it rains carnivorous toads in this one town in maine every nine years or seven years Uh, It's just crazy. It's just amazing stuff. But what I love about this book was his introduction is probably my favorite thing he's ever written. And uh, it's called Myth, Belief, Faith in Ripley's Believe It or Not. And it just talks about like when he was growing up, he believed all this weird stuff, hook, line and sinker. And even as an adult, he still believes it. And for me growing up, Re- listening to this on a book tape, like an actual tape, there's one part in here that I absolutely love, and it says, I believed all the weird stuff because I was built to believe in weird stuff. Other people run races because they were built quote. to run fast or play basketball because God made them six foot ten and solve long, complicated equations on blackboards because they were built to see the places where the numbers all lock together. That was freaking huge so joe when you were saying like that part reading in sandman changed your life this part completely changed my life too because up until that point i had just received nothing but grief for being weird and liking weird stuff and Mm. not being able to i don't know if under saying the word understand it is the right word for it but like it was always seen as like a bad thing. Like it's bad that you like monster movies. It's bad that you like the gross stuff that other people are grossed out by. What's wrong with you? So when I, and what's cool about it on the book tape is like, he reads that introduction just, which makes it even better. And here he, 
here he's saying, like, as a teenager, I'm listening to this, like, it's okay for you to like this weird shit because that's just how you are. These guys are super tall because they were supposed to play basketball. You like weird stuff because you just were. And I freaking loved it. And on top of the stories just being great, like, you know, Tales from the Crypt style stories from Stephen King, they're amazing. But that line was huge for me. And it still is important to me. So, yeah, love that book, Nightmares and Dreamscapes. So I'll say in college, Bill and Nick and I put together a little, little compilation book of creative writings, right? Bill, you use that quote in our book. And yeah, that's why I, as soon as you started, I'm like, that's his quote. That's the one. Yeah. So that made me really happy there. There you go. Yeah. So yeah. I like, love it. It was huge. I and like I said, the stories on their own were amazing. But like that part, it just it was one of those moments where you just could feel the I don't know, the proverbial light bulb go off or like those connections being made. And it's like, holy shit. Yeah, I I'm into all this weird stuff because I'm just built that way. I'm supposed to like this stuff. You know, that's and it's OK. It's not a bad thing. Like up until that point, everyone had been saying so far. James, it's funny you mentioned that because coincidentally, Stud Cubed is my number one book on my. I'm just kidding. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. man. What do you have for number one? Okay, so I was I was a little conflicted on this because my number one book of all time, and this is a sacred cow for me, is Catcher in the Rye. I'm not going to discuss Catcher in the Rye though because I honestly I haven't read it in a long time, but it, it's kind of its own separate stratosphere to me than all other books. So. Since this is our Mount Rushmore of basically of whatever we define of like books that are important to us, mean things to us, for whatever definition we put to it, the probably the second most important book to me is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I knew it. So uh, I was hoping. Yeah, this book and it's. I'm not going to cheat and go Ultimate Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is a compilation of all Douglas Adams' books. I am actually going with the original Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy um, because that is the one that I, I genuinely love the most out of that entire story. Um, it's it's sci-fi mixed with British comedy. It's just ridiculous. I mean, the movie was good. I enjoyed the movie, and I don't want to be one of those people's like, oh, the book was better. But it's – I don't see how anyone could possibly make a movie that would even hold a candle to the book because you just don't have Douglas Adams' voice in the movie since he's not with us anymore. Uh, the first time I ever was exposed to – Hitchhiker's Guide was from my brother Adam. He and his friends uh, James and Johnny and Brad were all like got I guess one of their teachers in high school had kind of turned them on to So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. And Adam had gotten a hold of I guess either it was either the audiobook or it was a radio performance and it was Douglas Adams reading or performing Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So he was doing all these different voices and it was all in the British accent and so you could feel or hear the British humor so much more distinctly 
in his actual voice than just reading it on the page. But because I heard that first, when I actually read the book, I still had his voice in my head. So that just made the joke so much funnier. That that made the just the, the sarcasm and the wit and the satire so much more poignant and funny. Essentially, and I'm sure at least a little bit everyone here is familiar with this story, but it's it's a fish out of water story. It's it's this proper guy, Arthur Dent, that his home is it's ridiculous. His home is demolished because they're putting an interplanetary highway through the the earth. Like it's getting his home is getting demolished on Earth, I should say, because they're building a highway there, but then Earth is destroyed because they're putting in an interplanetary highway. That's what I meant to say. He's rescued by this alien who has chosen the name of a car named Ford Prefect. This book is the reason that for a long time through college and shortly after, I always carried a towel with me because in this book it said a hitchhiker always should carry a towel. It's the perfect tool. Um, it keeps you warm. It keeps you dry. It can be a weapon. It can be a pillow. It can be all these things. And I was like, yeah, that's actually a decent point. I'm not a survivalist or anything, but anytime you can carry something with you that is could come in handy that could be used for multiple different reasons, why not? But yeah, it's it's just a really ridiculous, fun story. Yeah, that's that's really all I got for it. And, and they turned it into a really good song. <laughs> yes sure <laughs> so there are so many songs based on that book uh we talked about the one from our podcast so i can take straw the fish Radiohead has a song called Paranoid Android about Marvin. Coldplay has a song called Don't Panic. We could probably do a tournament of songs based on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> I actually had, Josh probably remembers this because he made a crack about the, the Coldplay thing, but I had a Bible at one time that had inscribed on the front cover, Don't Panic. And that was when I first knew that there was a Coldplay song about that because he's like, oh, you've got Coldplay printed on your Bible. Like, so. That was funny. so this is one of my favorite quotes uh there's this character does everybody here know hitchhiker's guide Mm -hmm. yeah all right so so we're all familiar with marvin the kind of like manically depressed android who knows more than any other system i love marvin right 
Love him so much. And I will say, just real quick, divergent here, Alan Rickman was the perfect voice for him in the movie. I cannot conceive of anyone else who could have played Marvin. Yeah, yeah, he does a great job. He really does. The line I wanted to bring up, um, there's this part in the story where the beans kind of get off the ship that Marvin's on and they go explore this planet and Marvin's left there alone with the ship and they come back and the ship won't start and somebody says Marvin what happened and then his answer is simple I got very bored and depressed so I went and plugged myself into its external computer feed I talked to the computer at great length and explained my view of the universe to it said Marvin and what happened press forward it committed suicide, said Marvin, and stopped off back to the heart of gold. It's amazing. <laughs> so good. So, yeah, um, that's a book I love and that I wouldn't have read if it wasn't for Nick, because he told me for like two years, you need to read Hitchhiker's Guide. And I got to a time where I needed a distraction, and I read the Hitchhiker's Guide. I bought the first book. Flew through it, went out, bought the anthology, and flew through that. Yeah. I can't thank you enough, Nick. That's on my honorable mentions. Excellent. Was on my honorable mentions as well. Dude, rock on. All right, so last on the list, my number one, I saved my fiction book for the end. It's called A Long Way Down. And I knew it. it is, yep. Yeah. yeah. So it's by Nick Hornby, the guy that wrote High Fidelity. And when you open the book, the first page you read is just a quote by this woman named Elizabeth McCracken, and it says, the cure for unhappiness is happiness. I don't care what anyone says. And then you start the book. And the book is about these four people who live in London that go to uh, the highest spot in London on New Year's Eve to kill themselves. And they don't know each other. And what they find out later is that New Year's Eve is the most popular night of the year to commit suicide, and the spot they all went to is the most popular suicide spot when people in the city commit suicide. And because the one person got there first, then the second person got there, then the third, then the fourth, it just kind of becomes this awkward situation where they're trying not to watch each other, and they're trying not to get into each other's way. And they start talking, and it's not like this, and they start bonding. It's this kind of, they all get annoyed with each other. But then there's this 17-year-old kind of crazy girl up there who wants to kill herself. And because the rest of them are adults, they're sort of like, no, no, you can't. You're too young, blah, blah, blah. So they get her down, and they go confront her ex-boyfriend. And because they went into the side thing, now they have this quote-unquote relationship and so they make a pact to not kill themselves until valentine's day and they have to kind of keep steady communication to kind of make sure nobody's killing themselves and cheating and it's i just think this wonderful super cool story from that point onward it's got a thousand good lines in it and the way it's written is like oral history books are just quotes the story, all these four characters, they're the four narrators of the book. And so it'll kind of go narrator by narrator to kind of describe what's going on. They all have four very distinct voices, so that lends itself to a lot of comedy just to see the different way they're interpreting these events. Some of the lines I really like are telling me I can do anything is like putting is like pulling the plug out of the bath and then telling the water it can go anywhere it wants to. Go ahead and try it and see what happens. 
Uh, there's the line, everyone knows how to talk and no one knows what to say. Hard is trying to rebuild yourself piece mm. by piece with no instruction book and no clue as to where all the important bits are supposed to go. I just thought that was really good. One could argue that most of the trouble in the world is caused by introspection. <laughs> I liked that a lot. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, the kind of crazy girl at some point says, most people have a rope that ties them to someone, and that rope can be short or it can be long. You don't know how long, though. It's not really your choice. And then this one that's just thought was kind of funny. He's at the chocolate teapot end of the competency scale. Chocolate teapot. <laughs> <laughs> and so to bring up, you know, Nick's uh, all-time favorite book, The Catcher of the Rye, it ends with the narrator holding coffee on saying something along the lines of don't ever tell anything to anybody because once you do that, you start to miss everybody. And so there's sort of this cool moment where in the book, the kind of crazy girl, because she saw it on an American television show, <laughs> calls all these he, she finds out like who these people's loved ones are and she gets them all together in one room to tell the whole group not to kill themselves and to her it's like oh it's like an intervention it works all the time i saw it on jenny jones or something like that <laughs> and because like now all these people in their lives know their deepest problems and these people kind of are really rough around the edges of you know having emotional intimacy being aware of their own emotions or how to deal with them it kind of just becomes this it seemingly starts out as just this horrible thing but then these little very normal things happen that stabilize everybody's life in a way and the book ends with the four of them talking and it's valentine's day and i think they agree to not kill each other not kill themselves until april fool's day or something like that and again it's sort of this thing where there is no huge like and then everybody was okay moment but the one of my favorite parts is this woman whose son um, is paraplegic and she was going to kill herself and she she felt really guilty because she was believing her son and she's like even though i'm not sure he actually is aware of my presence at all with his brain activity i i, I still felt bad about it and so her big like growth is that she gets a part-time job and she joins a, a pub quiz night team with some guy that she meets at the intervention. <laughs> and um, so for her, like, you know, you everyone else kind of has these big expectations for her life. And for this one woman, all she wanted was something that seemed a little bit normal and she got it. And even though she got the least, she's the most thankful for what she had just because her attitude was like, quote unquote, mm. the right attitude. There's, a, I could go on and on, and I already have about that book, but there's so much to it, and it's so entertaining. I've had like two or three friends read it off my recommendation, and none of them liked it. So I'm not going to tell our huh. listeners to go out and read this book, but for however I build, it hit so many right notes with me i absolutely love it and fiction wise that's my favorite book i've ever read nice all right there we have it it was good good lists do we have any honorable mentions yeah i had i had two of them um i had the road by cormac mccarthy i know uh just because when i first 
I thought I was going to get like the typical post-apocalyptic and uh, far from it. And then that set me down the rabbit hole of reading more of his stuff like No Country for Old Men, which almost got on there. And then uh, Blood Meridian, which almost got on there as well, because that book was really, really great, like super disturbing. And yet he never really says anything terrible in it. It's just disturbing how he writes it. And then War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. That was another one. Nice. Yep. So I, I also had the road. Um, uh, we mentioned Alan Moore earlier, and Joseph mentioned Neil Gaiman, so I'll mention my comic book guy is Grant Morrison. He has a book. It's, it's an actual book book called Super Gods, and it's all about comics, and it's basically like a history of comics and why mm-hmm. comics mean so much to people. I love that book. And then Lord of the Rings I had <laughs> on there. And then 1776 and Ooh, yeah. or John Adams by David McCullough. So those are mine. I had, I wanted to do like just the generic complete short stories of Edgar Allan Poe. One of my all-time faves. One of my earliest faves. I think he was one of the earliest that got me into like fucked up stuff. I remember Mr. Gale. Gosh. <laughs> making us read it in like seventh grade um girl with a dragon tattoo is actually one of my favorite books ever as i lay dying by william faulkner anything mm. by david sedaris and okay cool song of Susanna was the the dark tower one i almost picked see i almost picked the wasteland nice yeah love it i have the first edi- <laughs> the first edition of that no way oh that's awesome it was in love some it. Books, I don't remember where it was. It wasn't around here. It was like Columbus or somewhere. A while back, Dick Barry and I agreed that what really matters is what you like, not what you are like. Books, records, films, these things matter. Call me shallow. It's the fucking truth. There are only three guarantees in life. Death. Yeah, okay.